0: What image comes to your mind when you think of Jesus? I mean, what do you think Jesus looked like? Uh, Did he look like the way movies have portrayed him? Is it the way famous artists have painted him throughout the years? I have a few classic paintings to show you the way artists have envisioned Jesus through the years. Here's the first one, it's an icon of Jesus where he looks really pious and serious. I mean, but I don't know, I'd wanna really hang around him and spend some time with him, it it doesn't look very fun. But this is the way artists in the Byzantine era and the Middle Ages began portraying Jesus. Now here's the second one, and this is the classic Jesus that, that started the images in our minds of what we think Jesus looked like. He's a white European, with blue penetrating eyes and long flowing hair. But he looks a little fragile, a little weak, but very spiritual. But that's not what Jesus looked like at all. Jesus wasn't a white European, he was a Middle Eastern Jew. His skin was darker, his eyes were probably brown. We know he was a carpenter growing up, so he was in the construction business. So he must have been strong, a man's kind of man. Now, there are a lot of modern paintings of Jesus. Some are good, some aren't so great, but it's all fine and good. I wanted to show you a couple of those. Uh, Here's the first one. Um, He's a good-looking guy. Show the next one. Yeah, um, these are some of those modern paintings of Jesus. I call them the movie star Jesus. That's kind of what Jesus' paintings are now. It's the movie star Jesus. It looks like he could have been on The Bachelor, you know, if he came today. This Jesus would have definitely brought a hairstylist with him wherever he went on his travels, that's for sure. And we know the real Jesus didn't look like that. Scripture says there was nothing about his outward appearance that would draw you to him. He was very ordinary looking. Now, we know what Jesus didn't look like, but we don't know exactly what Christ looked like on this earth, but I don't think it's that important. What is important is what was Jesus really like? And what is he like? And who does he want to be in your life? And what does he want you to be like today? I think we need to rediscover the real Jesus because we sort of censored Jesus through the years. We've tried to make him fit into our own little mold of what we want him to be so that we can be comfortable with who we are. We've censored the real Jesus and we've made a PCJC out of him, but not only politically correct, we've also made him Christian correct. I think Christians through the years have tried to make him into what we want him to be so we can feel comfortable about who we are and who he wants to be in our lives. I think if you ask most Christians, if you ask most people to describe Jesus' personality in one word, probably the word that would come to their mind most often would be nice. I mean, he was a really nice person. He was really nice and spiritual, but boring. Author Tim Hansel says, Jesus, to the contrary, was never boring. He was shocking, he was astonishing, he was loving, daring, revolutionary, kind, caring, compassionate, but nice? No, he was never once accused of being nice. To encounter Jesus of Nazareth, To come into the presence of God in the flesh was at times like stepping into the path of a hurricane. It was dangerous. It was risky. But it was always life-changing. It was always life-transforming. I mean, just think about it for a minute. Jesus was always a troublemaker at the temple. He was never following all their made-up religious rules, always breaking the rules and healing, hurting people on the Sabbath. And he was always speaking so differently from all the other religious leaders, all the other preachers of the day. He spoke with authority about things like sorrow and joy, about anxiety and peace, about sickness and wholeness, about death and eternal life. He was like an earthquake that rocked the status quo in his culture to the core, and it shoved those who were addicted to complacency out of their comfort zone. He was a hurricane force wind of truth that shattered the lives of the pious religious leaders and the arrogant elites and left their hypocrisy fully exposed for all to see. He was a wildfire of passion for his father's house that swept away all of those who were taking advantage of the poor and powerless. I mean, make no mistake about it. This Jesus was a dangerous man. And I think because we've sort of censored Jesus through the years, we've sanitized the Christian life. We've censored the Christian life a bit because I think when most people think about Christians, they would describe a Christian as someone who's nice but boring and maybe a little bit judgmental. And that's because most Christians are nice, but boring, and probably a little bit judgmental. But that's not what the Christian life is at all. There's nothing wrong with being nice, folks. Don't get me wrong. It's fine, that's good. But the Christian life is so much more than that. The Christian life, as modeled by its founder, is a life of adventure, and passion, and compassion, and creativity, and challenge, and beauty, and pain, and risk, and danger. And somehow we've censored it, and sanitized it through the years. And I believe because we've censored the Christian life, a lot of churches I'm afraid today, because of our misconception of who Jesus really is, who he was, who he is, and who he wants to be in our lives. And most churches are kind of known as Nice, but boring. But church should be the most exciting, the most creative, the most passionate, the most life-transforming, the riskiest, and the most dangerous place you ever go. That's the way God wants it to be. And that's why we're starting this new series that I'm calling Jesus Uncensored, rediscovering the most dangerous man who ever lived, peeling away all the layers to get down to the real Jesus to discover who he was, who he is, and who he wants to be in your life. And I really think this series should have a warning label on it, just to be honest with you. It's dangerous because it could change your life forever. Forever. It could change you forever. It can change the way you think, the way you act. I mean, it's dangerous. And that's the way our Jesus is. Because he wants us to experience life to the full. So I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter nine, because we're gonna see this guy, Matthew, come into the presence of almighty God. And we're gonna see what happens here, because... This dangerous man is also so surprising. And so open your Bibles to Matthew chapter nine. Would you stand in honor of God's word, Woodland Church? And I wanna welcome all you guys who are worshiping with us through our satellite uh, campuses, Woodland Church, Atascacita, Woodland Church, North Point, and everyone worshiping with us through our broadcast and online ministry wherever you are. I know thousands of you are connected to us right now. We have pastors online as well who can minister to you and answer questions. I encourage you, pray with you. And everyone here at the Woodlands campus, you guys fire me up. And so I appreciate you guys so much. It's so cool to see what God is doing at Woodlands Church. More people coming to Woodlands Church than ever before through our campuses, in person, and online. It's amazing what God does. And when finally we can all be back together, it's gonna be unreal. And I'm telling you, God is moving like never before at Woodland Church. And so I want you to follow along with me because change always starts one heart at a time, one life at a time. And it says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum?" When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. To God, I thank you that you are a friend of sinners and that you save us, you heal us, you strengthen us, you set us free, and I pray that you would do that today. Lord Jesus, I know that you're the same today as you were 2,000 years ago. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I pray for everyone within the sound of my voice that you, Jesus Christ, would just meet them right where they are, just like you did Matthew that day. You'd meet them right where they are, and you'd meet their deepest need, as only you can. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. I want you to see three things about this dangerous man, Jesus Christ. First, Jesus is a danger to religion, but a safe place for sinners. I mean, make no mistake about it, Jesus was and still is the greatest danger to religion and religiosity and religious people. Jesus has always been a danger to religion because his purpose was to come and destroy religion and replace it with relationship. That's why he came to this earth. Jesus is a safe harbor, though, for sinners, those who know they're broken, and don't try to hide it, and know that they need salvation, then he's a safe harbor for sinners. He was called a friend of sinners. Matthew discovered this. He was a Jew, yet he was considered a traitor by most people in Israel, because he was a tax collector. Now, Israel was occupied by Rome. They were ruled by Rome at the time, and the Roman strategy is they would let the ruling bodies of the country that they were occupying rule, kind of pseudo-rule, because Rome was really in control, but it would just help them out, and so there were two religious ruling bodies in Israel at the time that were really under Roman rule. First was the Pharisees. They were the really religious leaders, but it was all outward show. I mean, it was all following rules, rituals, and regulations so that they would be seen as really pious and holy and religious so that they could control the people and they were the hypocrites. You know, on the outside, they were doing all these religious things that were very impressive, but on the inside, they were empty. On the inside, they were rotten, they were broken, but they didn't even realize it, and so that hypocrisy Turned a lot of people off. Because you can see through hypocrisy. You know, when my kids became teenagers, their hypocrisy detectors, they got so sensitive, you know? I couldn't fool them anymore. It was sad. You know, I mean, teenagers, they just look right through you as parents and go, you always tell me this, but you're doing that. I remember when they started driving. You know, and I would... I was helping them learn to drive, and then they would be sitting with me, and I would be driving, they go, Dad, you got onto me because it's only 35, and you're going 45. And I'd go, I know how to handle it, son, okay? It's all right. I mean, that's what I felt like, but it's right, you know? They could just sense hypocrisy, so sensitive to it, but, and I'm telling you, the people of Israel, they could see. They could see The hypocrisy, because the Pharisees were always judgmental and they were always telling them all the rules they needed to follow, but secretly, they weren't following a lot of them. It's just doing all these things outwardly. And so Matthew must have been so turned off by the Pharisees, they pushed him away from religion and they kept him from moving toward God. But then there were the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they were the aristocratic religious leaders. They weren't real religious and... Really, they were like the Pharisees in that they didn't like Roman rule. They looked forward to a day when Rome wouldn't rule Israel, but yet they had learned to go with the flow. They had learned to live with it. In fact, they had gone with the flow so much they had learned to line their pockets you know, with the Romans, and they became very wealthy because of Roman occupation. They would just work with the Romans, and, and they would go along with them. They weren't hypocrites, though, because everyone knew what they were doing. They didn't try to hide it. You know, they were cheating the system and they, they were really open about it. And Matthew, being pushed away from the hypocrites, decided to join the Pharisees, became a tax collector for the Roman government. Now, tax collectors were considered the lowest of the low because basically Rome had this quota every month that you had to meet. And if you met that quota and you gave it to Rome, then if you used that Roman authority to collect more and a lot more, then you could keep it for yourself and you could line your pockets with it. And so all tax collectors were really corrupt and the people hated the tax collectors for cooperating with the Roman government. And they were so corrupt, but they weren't hypocrites either. They didn't try to hide it. Now here's the worst thing about being a tax collector. To become a tax collector, you bought your position. You just bought your position just flat out and everyone knew it. But what was even worse is usually the way you bought it was, you had to sell your land, your property. Matthew probably sold his land and it was a huge deal because to own a piece of the promised land, to have a piece of God's promise to you as a people was so important and so near and dear to everyone's heart and to think that you would just give that up so that you could live a corrupt life and you could get wealthy and be connected to Rome. I mean, people just looked down on tax collectors. They were morally bankrupt. They were the lowest of the low. They were the sellouts. But they weren't hypocrites because they knew they were the sellouts. They knew they were the lowest of the low. They knew they were morally bankrupt. The amazing thing is this morally bankrupt, low life meets the embodiment of righteousness, the perfect, sinless, son of the living God, the creator of the universe, face to face, and what happens? I mean, you think he would just run, you know? You'd think he'd be, please don't strike me dead. You know, I deserve judgment. What happens? They instantly become friends. And that's strange. In fact, Jesus says, "Come, follow me, be one of my disciples. you're just what I'm looking for." You see, Jesus saw into Matthew's heart and he saw that he knew that he was a sinner, that he was the lowest of the low. He knew that he was morally bankrupt, and that had never satisfied him. It had never filled him. You see, the religious had pushed him away from God and he had gone into a life of sin. But now Jesus called him not to a life of rules but a life of relationship with the living God and forgiveness and wholeness and a whole new life. And he took that opportunity and he followed Jesus and he came to Christ and came into a relationship with Christ repented of his sins, completely changed from the inside out. And then he thought about all his friends that he cared about. And so he had a big party at his house and and they had this huge party and he invited all his friends and it was all the corrupt in town. It was all the immoral, it was the low lowlifes of town. They were all gathered at Matthew's house and Jesus was there having a great time. Jesus was there totally engaged, talking to them and listening to them and they weren't afraid of Jesus. They were really comfortable with Jesus and he was really comfortable with them. Isn't that strange? Think about that for a moment. Now, I have to say that I love people who don't know Jesus and just admit it. I love to hang around people that have got a lot of hang ups and they don't admit it. I love to hang around on church people. I mean, as long as there's honest, but, but, but sometimes as a pastor, I have to say that I make people feel uncomfortable. You know, I'll, I'll go in, I'll go to a party and it just shuts down the life of the party. Pastor's here. Put it away, put it away, Pastor's here. You know, it's like, you know, the hypocrisy sometimes, you know, starts to get to me. And, you know, you tell people, you know, after you get to know them that you're a pastor and their eyes just get really big and you can tell they're just thinking back, how many times have I cussed? He's a pastor, you know. I thought he was normal. I mean, Jesus, though, you know, he he made people feel comfortable, Those who were sinners knew they were sinners, didn't try to hide it. They weren't hypocrites. They were just broken, really broken. Really going the wrong direction. And Jesus would offer them something new and different, not religion that had pushed them away, but a relationship with God Almighty. A change from the inside out where they could come out of that life of sin and brokenness and emptiness and find fullness of life and forgiveness. And that's what he offered Matthew, and I'm sure a lot of Matthew's friends came to Christ and were never the same again. But what did the religious people do? They got so mad. They got so upset at Jesus. And they told his disciples, what is he doing eating with all these scum? Why is he doing that? I mean, it made them really angry. Why? Because they didn't think they needed grace they didn't think they needed grace at all because they they looked at themselves and they thought, hey, we're okay. In fact, we're better than all these people. They used their religion and their good works to try to say, well, I'm better than them. And they would compare themselves. If you start comparing yourself to other people, you're gonna miss God's grace. You're gonna miss God's, you're gonna miss the whole point. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, He was really dangerous to the religious leaders. In Matthew 23, 27, here's what he said once to the the Pharisees, and you know, Jesus who encourages his graceful words, his wonderful, wonderful encouraging words. Here's what he said. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Whew, that wasn't very encouraging. <laughs> Jesus' words weren't PC here, but they were the truth. And here's what it's amazing to me. They were also love. These words were love because he was saying, the problem is your religiosity is keeping you from my grace. Your religiosity and hypocrisy is keeping you from experiencing the grace and forgiveness that I offer because you're dependent on religion and you think you don't need salvation. The only people that get saved are those who know they need to get saved. The only people who get forgiven are those who admit and know they need to be forgiven. The Pharisees were much worse off than Matthew because they were just as broken on the inside, but they didn't see it. They didn't realize it, because they were using religion to cover it over. They were using religion to feel better about themselves than everyone else, and they were looking down at everyone else, judging everyone else, feeling good about themselves. And Jesus just came right at them, because he knew that their only hope was for someone to tell them the truth in such a way that it would rock their world he rocked their world, but instead of turning to grace, they just dug in. They just dug in and they wanted him dead. You see, grace is our only hope. Jesus came to destroy the rottenness of religion that keeps us from his undeserved grace. He wants everyone to experience his grace and we all need it, we're all in the same boat until we come to that place to realize that we need his grace and his forgiveness and his death upon the cross, because as long as I think my sins aren't that bad, my sins aren't, you know, yeah, okay, I've sinned, but they're not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. As long as I think that, I don't really understand why Jesus, the God of the universe, came to this earth and shed his perfect sinless blood in such a horrific, shameful, painful, horrible way on the cross. My sins were so bad they caused the God of the universe to die that excruciatingly painful and horrific death because it was the only way my sins could be forgiven. Until I come to that place, I'm gonna miss God's grace. I'm gonna totally miss God's grace and that's why Jesus was so dangerous to the religious people because he came to destroy religion because religion was the biggest barrier that was keeping them from experiencing the grace of God and his total loving forgiveness and his change from the inside out that can only happen when we know that we need it. The only people who get healed are those who know they need healing. The only ones who get wholeness are those who know they're broken and the Pharisees were much worse off because they didn't even know it. They didn't realize that they were blinded by pride but Jesus is a safe place for sinners. And that's when we started Woodland Church, 27 years ago today, on November 7th, 1993. We started Woodland Church, our first service. There were, after we had started our little Bible study and, and it dwindled to about eight, we had, then we had our first celebration, big celebration service, and we had 164 people and four people prayed to receive Christ at the end of that service. And our purpose statement is the one that has made all the difference, and that is to help people experience Jesus Christ, rather than man's creation of religion, so they can grow strong in Christ and take this Christ experience to the world. Our goal from day one was to kick religion out the door, following rules, rituals, and regulations to feel better about ourselves and then just teach Jesus, Jesus, and experience Jesus because he's the one that can change our lives. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that's why the message can push some people away. Jesus plus nothing equals everything? Well, yeah, Jesus, but also I'm a good person. Yeah, Jesus, but also, you know, you kind of follow this and follow that. No, it's Jesus plus nothing. He's the only way. He's the only hope. It's Jesus and Jesus alone because he's the one and only, the one true way. And so we've always taught that, and we've always helped people experience Jesus, and I love it when so many people, who are so far from God, have come to Christ at Woodlands Church, and it's so exciting. I knew that we were doing exactly what God wanted us to do early on when all these people were coming in, and and they just didn't act like church folks, you know, and just kept coming to Christ and growing in Christ. And I remember during the first year there was a a man who came to the Lord who had been an alcoholic, he'd been on drugs, been into all kinds of stuff, just, but he knew that he was totally bankrupt, he knew that he was totally broken, he came to Christ, Christ changed his life, he got a restoration, Christ started restoring his life, and I remember, I had him share his testimony early on, his story, and he wrote it all out for me before he did it, I read it and I said, this looks amazing, you know, just share your true story, you know, and and he shared it, but before he did, he said, Carrie, I want permission to do one more thing. I'd like to do a palm reading, and my heart just sank because I thought, well, I guess he's still into like tarot cards or fortune telling or something like that, and I said, what do you mean, John, a palm reading? And he said, well, it's the 23rd Palms. It's my favorite in the whole Bible, and I I just wanted to read it, and I go, dude, you can read as many palms as you want. (laughs) I love the palms, too. I'm thinking of doing a series, going through the palms. The Palm of Palms is one of my favorites, so. And I thought, man, I love you. You're awesome. And, and we, that's the way it always went, you know, and that's the way it still goes. We bring people in that are far from God and turn them into missionaries for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. I remember our first men's small group. This guy had just come to Christ he wanted to gather all his friends. We go, we're gonna have a men's market. That's awesome. Let's go for it. You know, we gave him some material and he came back next week He said, Pastor Kerry, we had 20 men at Hooters Tuesday night for our, for our, for our time. And I said, did they come because of the Bible study or because it was at Hooters, you know? He said, I don't know, but it was awesome. And, and I said, yeah, that's awesome, but then maybe, maybe that's awesome, and maybe have it. And we opened up, a, you know, a place at the church until they could get some other place to meet, so. Worked that all out. But anyway. (laughs) We've had all kinds of amazing, wonderful things because we love sinners. We love sinners. We love the broken. We're all broken. We're all in the same boat, and we only have one that can bring wholeness to us, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus was a friend of sinners. They always said, he's a friend of sin. That was the criticism they gave him. They called him a drunkard and a partier, and he wasn't that at all, but He didn't care, didn't bother him. He just kept reaching people who knew they needed to be saved. And what did he say? I didn't come for those who are healthy, who think they're righteous when they're really not. I came for those who know they need a doctor. They're sick with sin. Jesus is a safe place for sinners. And maybe you're a Christ follower, but you're falling back into religion, trying to do enough to prove that God should bless you. Trying to feel like you deserve a blessing of God or, or thinking if things aren't going well, God must be punishing you because you deserve that. And, but you're a Christ follower, you're totally forgiven, you're righteous in Christ, but you've been moving back into religion. Listen to what Jesus tells you today. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. He said, if you've been burned out on religion, you know, trying to prove that you're worthy of God, if you're a Christ follower, then go back to experiencing and breathing in his grace, knowing that we can't earn it or deserve it when you run into bad things and difficult times. No, it's not God punishing you, that he loves you. It's just part of the way he grows us. And we don't understand it all at times. And if you get blessed, just receive that blessing. It's from his grace. Sure, we could never earn it or deserve it, but he loves giving his kids blessings. Receive it, thank God for it. Breathe in his grace. God doesn't want us to move back into the rottenness of religion. And so Jesus was a friend of sinners, but dangerous to religion. But a second thing I want you to see, Jesus is a danger to the haters, but a friend to forgivers. Jesus took the greatest risk of all time in creating us and then giving us free will. Why? Because he loved us so much and he wanted us to love him back. And he had to take that risk to give us the ability to reject him. And then he died on the cross and offered forgiveness that would cover each and every one of us even though he knew some wouldn't even receive it, wouldn't accept it, would walk right over his beaten and bloody body and never receive him. I mean, he did that That's the greatest risk you could ever take. But I mean, Jesus was the great gambler. And he gambled it all on love, on loving you, caring about you, wanting you to come into a relationship with him and to never be separated from him. And he asks us to forgive like that. Luke 627, Jesus said, but to you who are listening, I say love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. I kind of want to cut that out of the Bible sometimes. Lord, do you realize who my enemies are? I think you would want to maybe send a bolt of lightning their way probably if you really knew God. No, he says love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. I mean, you can't do that without God's power. You can't do that without God's power. You need the Lord's power to do that, but Jesus is dangerous to the haters. Why? Because he loves you. He knows if you hold on to hate, it will turn into bitterness, and it will just destroy you. That's the That's the thing that Jesus cares about so much is you, and he wants you to be free from resentment because resentment destroys you. I'll never forget early in my ministry how someone that I trusted said something about me that just hurt so deeply, and he lied about me and betrayed me, and it just shocked me. You know, it's like, why wouldn't anyone think that I'm wonderful? I I don't know. And it just, and I just, boy, I just like, but that's so not true. I can't believe it. And it just like, I wanted just to prove that's not true. That's what? And I got so frustrated and upset. And and then I got so distracted from what God was calling me to do. It just bothered me so much. And I finally realized it was just pride because everyone to think that I'm just great. And someone lies about me. I get all upset about it. Think about all the lies that were told about Jesus. And I'll never forget, though, reading that passage. And then praying and I knelt to pray and I was like, okay, I need to pray for this person. Lord, I pray for them that maybe a bus would hit them today and not kill them, but just maim them, okay? Where they could lay in the hospital bed and think for a while about how much they really need to repent. No, I didn't pray that, that's what I wanted to pray. That was the true prayer from my heart, so I just prayed it in front of you, but what I really prayed, was, God, I don't really feel like this, but I pray you just bless them. Just bless their socks off. Just pour blessings down on them for your glory, for your kingdom. Just bless them, Lord. I didn't feel it, but what I felt right when I prayed was this giant burden lift off of me. And it was as if the Lord saying, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna bless you. Release it so you can receive my blessings. And I kept praying, God, bless them. Bless them. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Man, that doesn't come naturally to me. But that's what God calls us to do. Why? Because hate takes a hold of you and it will never let you go until you let go of it. And some of you are still letting someone from your past hurt you today. And it's hurting you today. You're letting them continue to hurt you. Now, here's the thing. Forgiveness is so important to understand, especially what it's not, because I talk to a lot of people of misconceptions about Christian forgiveness. They'll say, well, I know I'm supposed to forgive them, but if I do, they're just gonna hurt me again, and forgiveness and trust are two different things. We're to forgive instantly, no matter what, for our sake, to relieve and release the bitterness, and because Christ commands it to be like Jesus, but it doesn't mean that trust has to be built back right away, it takes time to build trust back. It doesn't mean your business partner cheats you, you're to forgive them instantly, but it doesn't mean you get back into business with them. It doesn't mean that, I mean that you just say, oh, no big deal, it's not minimizing the hurt, and saying, oh, it's no big deal, I'm a Christian, don't worry about it. No, it's a big deal, it hurt deeply. You wronged me deeply, but I'm gonna choose to forgive you even though I don't feel like it, for my sake, and because Christ commands it, and because I need forgiveness in the future. And so, if you're holding on to hurt, holding on to hate today, holding on to resentment today, you gotta let it go. You gotta let it go. And maybe you're saying, Carrie, you don't know how deeply I've been wronged and wounded. And maybe I don't, but I know this. We'll never be hurt more than Jesus Christ was when he took all the sins of the world upon his body in the darkest hour of human existence, and if you choose to forgive, he'll fill you with his power and his strength, and again, it's not letting the person off the hook. It's not letting them off the hook, and by the way, I can tell you this, God will take care of it. God will take care of it. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and he will one day take care of it. You say, I don't see that happening now. One day, he will take care of it promise you. It's his vengeance. And so Jesus is a danger to the haters, but a friend to forgivers. In Matthew 18, 21, it says, then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times. Jesus replied, 70 times 7 going, what? You know, Peter was thinking he was being real spiritual to say seven times, and Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. What was he saying? He was saying, every time that hurtful thought comes to your mind, the hurtful thing comes to your mind, the wrong comes to your mind, say, God, I don't like it, I don't feel like it, but I choose to forgive them because you command me to and for my own sake, release the bitterness from me. God, I choose to forgive them. Every time it comes to your mind, choose to forgive them, choose to forgive them so you can walk in freedom because forgiveness is a gift that heals the giver. But then there's a third thing. Jesus is a danger to the darkness, but a light to the lost and lonely. If you're feeling a dark cloud of depression, if you're feeling a dark cloud of financial loss, if you're feeling a dark cloud of maybe a health crisis that's hovering over you, just know that Jesus is the light that dispels the darkness. Jesus is the light. In John 1, 4, and 5, it says eternal life is in him, and this life gives light to all mankind. His light is the light that shines through the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. The light of Jesus Christ, if Christ is in your life burned brightly, and no matter what dark valley you walk through, even the dark valley of death, that light will never be extinguished. It's an eternal light that brings light to all those around and it dispels the darkness. It shatters the darkness, and so this week, I want you to walk in light, the light of honesty and truth, in the light of his grace, in the light of his joy, and you walk with your head held high, and you keep stepping in light, stepping in light, and you bring light wherever you are. You bring light to the darkness. You bring light and joy wherever you go this week, because of his grace. He saved you and you're a trophy of his grace. We've got so much to thank God for because of his grace. Amazing Grace is one of the most popular songs of all time and I think that it's so popular because we all deep down know that we need amazing grace. But it was written by a pastor in England by the name of John Newton. He was pastoring a small church in a small town in England and he was getting ready for New Year's Day services and he needed a song for it and he began to pen Amazing Grace. And he thought back on how God had saved him and how much God had saved him from. He was even shameful to think back on but he took his shame directly to the Christ of grace again. He said that he was the most wretched person of all, the most sinful person of all because he was in charge of a slave trading ship for years. He was the captain of that slave trading ship and he had committed so many vile acts. He had done so many indescribably sinful things in the slave trade. He said I was a great blasphemer but one night a storm came up, the ship almost sank And he cried out to God and asked for forgiveness and grace. And God saved him and changed him, and he never went back. And he became a great abolitionist in England and joined with William Wilberforce to stop the slave trade in England and in Europe. John Newton, amazing grace. He said every time he would sing it, he would think about how greatly he had been saved and how God had saved him from the worst of the worst, a wretch like me. And he said he would call that day that he got saved, March 21st, his turning day. It was his turning day. Every March 21st, he would celebrate it by fasting and praying and praying for others to come into his grace, praying especially even for slave traders, praying that God would stop that atrocity and bring people to himself. Every March 21st was turning day. This can be your turning day, but you gotta realize that you need salvation. You gotta realize you need grace. You gotta realize that every one of us are wretches in our sins, but we have a savior who gives us grace, and it's undeserved and it's free. This is your turning day, and if you're a Christ follower, but you've been turning back to religion, trying to prove that you're good enough to get God's blessings, and and when you're going through pain and difficulty, you think, man, I must not be pleasing God. What's going on? Start resting in his grace again. Let this be your turning day. To live in his grace, to breathe in his grace, his amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Let's pray together. Dear God, I thank you for your amazing grace. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, just to shine your light in every one of our hearts. I pray that you would just shine your light to every single person within the sign of my voice. Just shine your light in their heart right now. Open up their eyes to see the light, to step into the light and receive your grace. Let this be their turning day. Let this be our turning day our turning day, Lord God, for your glory, to live and to breathe in your grace alone. I pray for those who've never received you that they would say, Jesus Christ, I need you. I'm a sinner and I need your salvation. I ask you to forgive me and to come into my life. I accept your free gift of heaven. I can't earn it or deserve it. I just receive your grace and ask you to change me from the inside out. And then Lord, I pray for every Christ follower here that you, over the next few weeks, as we continue the series, that you would just reveal yourself to us. Reveal your grace to us. Let us walk in your light, walk in your grace. And I pray, Lord Jesus, light of the world, that you would just light our lives up in such a way that everyone around us could see what you're really like. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, now we're at the point of our service where we give back to God. And I just encourage you, if you're at one of our campuses, the way you give is with your smartphone. So take out your smartphones right now. If everybody would do that and just text GIVEWC, one word, to 77977. GIVEWC, one word, to 77977. That's the way you give. And you can set up Recurrent Giving. It'll take you to our PushPay app. Or you can give at home, wc.org, slash give. Online, give online, wc.org, slash give or you can mail in your check, or give stocks, or assets, or what we can all give. Not the same amount, but we can all give. And as we give, God gives back to us. Because when you give, he says, I will give back to you with the measure you use, it will be given back unto you. And that's a principle of life, not just in giving, but let's give because we love him. And we got something really powerful and special for you to end this anniversary service. Why don't we stand right now? Let's stand and let's thank the Lord for his amazing grace. Hey church, thanks for listening to the Woodlands Church with Carrie Shook podcast. By listening, we hope that you're encouraged wherever you are. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast so that you can get the latest messages each week. For more information on Woodlands Church, check out the description for a link to our website and how to connect with us. We hope you have a great week.